You're listening to Special Education Matters, a regular podcast about things that matter in special education. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and I am the proud father of an 18-year-old boy with autism. ABA, or Applied Behavioral Analysis, is a popular program designed to improve the communication development of individuals on the autism spectrum, as well as others. If you're new to the world of ABA, then my chat with Melissa Willa of the Gateway Learning Group is for you. We start with the basics of what ABA is all about, what it looks like from a parent and therapist's point of view, and continue our conversation about the future of ABA. Enjoy the conversation. Melissa Willa, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to be here and speak with you about ABA therapy and also to your listeners. Yeah, it's great to have you. And as we were talking before the show, you mentioned we don't on our site have much or anything about ABA. So, and that's certainly a popular thing for people who have a child with autism. Uh, let's just start it at the beginning. And can you tell us what ABA is, please? Sure. ABA is uh, the application of principles and tactics from the field of behavior analysis, the science of behavior, um, applied to help change the behavior of individuals in socially significant, meaningful ways. And it is applied to teach behavior to individuals in a variety of, of settings. But right now, autism is the most uh, widely used application of ABA therapy and the one that you hear the most about right now in the news. Now, I know when my son was diagnosed many years ago, it was always ABA, ABA is what people had suggested. And, and I'm wondering, like, from a parent's point of view, so if an ABA therapist came into, let's say, my home, was working with my child, what would it look like from a parent's point of view? And then I want to ask you, what's it look like from the therapist's point of view? Because they have a different mindset as, to, as far as to what's going on. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about this. It's really important for parents who are considering um, you know, signing up for ABA therapy for their child to understand what this is all about because it's a very intensive therapy. It's very different from other therapies yeah. that a parent might have already started with their child. A parent who has a child with an autism diagnosis might first start uh, to notice the language delays and begin some speech therapy. And they may receive, the child may receive speech therapy for two 30 minute sessions a week, a total of an hour. And the parent might think initially that ABA is going to have some, some similar schedule, um, but that's not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, ABA therapy is intensive. And when children are younger, it's generally comprehensive. And what that means is it's a scale of more like 25 to up to 40 hours a week. Um, and the therapy is provided in a child's natural environments, particularly when they're younger, in the family's home, which means you have a therapist in your home for several hours or more every day. Um, and that includes a lot of emphasis on parent training and parent involvement. So when you sign up for ABA therapy, there, there is a, a large parent involvement commitment while also understanding that parents need to go to work and if they're working. And so uh, ABA therapists also work with other caregivers to help either the nanny or daycare staff, grandparents, mm -hmm. other caregivers to implement the same techniques that they're using to teach the child new skills during sessions. 
So it's an expectation and then parents would be there to be part of it if possible and or a, a caregiver for the entire time or can I run out and get a bowl of ice cream mm-hmm. here and there? It's a great question. It, I think depending on the, the agency, they have different standards. Uh, at Gateway, we do require that a caregiver be on site for the entire duration of the session unless mm-hmm. the child, we have a few cases where a child is working on um, more independent community living, maybe an older adolescent, maybe even attending colleges at a campus, a, a college campus where they have a shadow aid, behavior aid for mm-hmm. support. In that case, the caregiver would not be appropriate for the parent to be present. But typically a parent or other caregiver designated adult over the age of 18 must be at home uh, on site where the therapy is taking place. Uh, and and, and uh, one okay. exception to that would be there are providers of ABA therapy and, and Gateway, we have one center location right now uh, where per- services can be provided in a clinic or center-based uh, environment where parents can bring their child, drop them off, receive some parent training there with a specialist, but also leave um, for a few hours and then come back afterwards. So there are kind of two models. One is in-home and one is center-based. Okay. So I understand the natural environment. That makes sense. As a parent, I should be there as much as possible. And, and you mentioned 25 plus hours a week. So yeah, going back to like, what am I going to see as a parent? What is a therapist doing for all that time? Mm-hmm. So ABA therapy with a comprehensive program for a child that's receiving services 25 to 40 hours a week, looking at all of those domains that a child may be functioning below their typically developing peers. And so that may look like for a two-year-old or three-year-old that there are delays in social interactions, communication. Um, Within that social realm, there may be um, play skills, um, turn-taking skills, interactive skills that the child needs to develop and benefits from a lot of extra practice and repetition. There may be motor delays. Um, there may be cognitive delays. And so the technician, the behavior technician is working on goals that have been developed by a board certified behavior analyst, which is the consultant level. And the consultant designs, designs mm-hmm. a treatment plan that the behavior technician then implements and works on a variety of these, of these goals. Now, what, what this looks like for a two and three-year-old is very different than what ABA therapy looks like for a 12 or 13 year old for a two or three for oh, okay. a two or three year old. Um, it, it can be structured sitting at a table um, with goals repeatedly presented to the child, but more common nowadays and what I believe is much better practice is to have programs, ABA programs for children who are two and three be much more naturalistic, much more play-based, um, more shared control between the therapist and the child um, rather than a more traditional discrete trial program, which is presenting more drills to a child over and over again. Um, that's kind of how ABA started back in the 70s and 80s. And there's been a nice progression evolution to more um, developmentally minded uh, progressive applications of the science to teaching children in more um fun, motivating ways. Yeah, I know there's sort of that history of the discrete trials that dates back that I think ABA has left long behind. And we're talking more of the different flavors that we're going to talk about perhaps later, the Lovas method and all that, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. 
Exactly. So, so from a therapist's point of view then, so, you know, I'm working with the child, what's going through my mind? When I think back to therapists for my son, there was a lot of data collection. There was a lot of focus and very specific activities, always looking for something to happen and then taking data about that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. So a good therapist is always mindful of what are the goals that the, the child, the individualized, personalized, personalized goals that the child has that have been um, designed by the consultant and looking for opportunities during play um, and watching what the child's intent and motivation is and then capturing those opportunities to sort of sneak in uh, one of those goals that the child needs to work <laughs> on. So um, a turn taking or let's say initially in um, a two or three year olds program, you're working a lot on their communication requesting items, ADA, VB, verbal behavior terminology is manding. So there's this concept of manned training mm -hmm. where you're teaching the child to request items that, um, that they want to play with, um, potentially that they want to have, you know, for a snack, um, what, whatever is motivating to the child in the moment to um, elicit that communication and get that language going. So the therapist okay. is really watching from a very moment to moment basis uh, of what is, what is a child interested in? Because it changes from a moment to moment basis. The child may be interested in, um, you know, playing with Play-Doh with the therapist. And then a minute and a half later, the child is looking across the room at, you know, some other toy uh, item that may be more motivating and better able to be used as a, as a reinforcer to teach the next skill. And how do you maintain that as a therapist? So if you're working 25 hours or more a week and you're looking maybe at five hours a day, so how does a therapist able to do mm -hmm. that intensive one-on-one -on -one and, and how's the child able to do it as well? Yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of intentional... I mean, how, how much, I guess I should ask, how much caffeine do you go through as a therapist? <laughs> Our th the therapist's work, it's an incredibly um, demanding, but a very, very rewarding job. Um, it, it does take uh, creativity and the ability to, you know, go with the flow, be flexible, um, be spontaneous. My advisor, I attended Columbia University teacher, Teachers College for my graduate program, and my advisor, mm -hmm. Doug Greer, at the time, you know, he would call teachers, um, teachers scientists, right? And very, his, his belief was that the best teachers were data-driven oh, nice. and, and working as scientists. And my spin on that is I think teachers, the best teachers are like architects. They are scientists, um, but they also mm. have that creative element and they, they know how to make things inspiring and motivating for the child to really hook the child in and, and, and get that learning going in a, in a meaningful way. Um, so what does that look like for, you know, the therapist? There are a lot of, you obviously can't continue for, for five hours straight. We need to build in um, breaks mm -hmm. and then also into the child's natural routine. So if the child is, um, has a two and a half, three hour session and that overlaps with a meal time. It's possible that the child has some goals related to, to meal time that are relevant to be worked on. So, if the child has uh -huh. food selectivity challenges, where the child only prefers to eat white or crunchy foods that may be targeted during meal time, or if the child 
has not yet learned to eat with utensils. Eating with utensils may be um, targeted during that time. Also a time to work on requesting and communication. So looking at what are the natural activities that a child, kind of how they would be moving through their day and being able to bring Mm -hmm. the therapy as much as possible into those routines. All right. So ABA therapy, a lot of time, there can be costs involved. I know there's alternatives for funding. One of the questions I'm sure you get is, does it actually work? And how do you know? Mm-hmm. It, it can be extremely effective. Um, and I've seen many children who, um, when we started working with them at ages two and three, um, had very little in terms of functional communication. And this was really tough, mm-hmm. tough on the families and um, a lot of hard work from the, the parents and the therapists, really great collaboration with the other providers, continuity of care, and also the child having um, a learning profile that, you know, really responded well to this therapy. The child, you know, made so much progress that then when you look in elementary school, um, you may still notice some some social tendencies or whatnot that are a little bit different than typical developing peers, but able to be fully included in general education classrooms mm-hmm. and enjoying all of those activities um, in, in classroom community that you would expect of typically developing peer of that age. But it said, not every child does have the same outcome with ABA therapy. Um, there are different um, diagnoses that are sometimes you know comorbid with an autism diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. A child, autism is a spectrum disorder. It r- runs a gamut in terms of how much potential intellectual disability is also associated with autism. So that can certainly have an effect on um, the level of, of, of progress that a child you know, is able to make. And at some point... So it's... T- mm-hmm, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I, in the beginning, we spoke about these, the, the comprehensive nature of ABA programs. At some point... Mm-hmm the therapy goes from being at that high dosage level after a few years, you start to see a step-by-step reduction in the hours that are recommended or prescribed um, by the clinician, or at least you should see that. Um, And so that may look like a step down from 30 hours a week to 25 to 20 um, and, and you continue to see the, that that step down before full discharge. If a teen with autism has an ABA program, it is likely that the teen has what's called a focused ABA program, not a comprehensive program. Mm-hmm. Comprehensive programs are generally for children about seven and under. Um, and a focused program looks a bit different. It's more 10 to 15 hours a week, maybe 20. Um, but you see a lot of focus programs in the 10 to 15 hour week range where there's a, a focus on social skills and um, more independent living, getting ready for that transition to adulthood. Oh, okay, I see. And I can't imagine a, somebody older than seven might not tolerate 30 hours of intensive therapy. Well, there are also, you know, there are other things at that point going on. There are childs in, in school. And right. at that mm-hmm. time, you've been able to see um, is this a child where you've been kept, able to catch them up to developmental norms, um, in which case you would not need that level of intensive therapy? Um, or mm-hmm. if the child was, and if the child wasn't one of your, you know, top responders in, in terms of that, that catch up, then at that point, 
the program really needs to shift its focus into a more um, functional um, life skills oriented uh, type of program. Okay. So most of you don't mind, I'd like to turn and ask just some questions about you. You've been at this for over 15 years. And I imagine that 15 years ago, you had one way of doing therapy and 15 years later, perhaps uh, has changed or evolved. Have you, what sort of changes or evolutions have you seen in ABA as you believe it should be practiced over the last 15 years? Sure. Um, I think the bulk of the changes that I saw actually happened early on in, in my career. So initially, uh, I got started in the field when I was an undergraduate at SUNY Geneseo, upstate New York. And there were a couple mm-hmm. of families, a couple of families who had children with autism, and they were flying out consultants from UCLA um, to fly into upstate New York and train the parents who would then train the college students on how do you use ABA working with their children with autism? Now, you know, we have behavior analysts in each of the 50 states, many thousands of behavior analysts, but at the time, there were really only a few who were using this um, methodology to help children with autism to learn. And I decided this resonated with me, it clicked with me, I decided to pursue my master's degree in uh, behavior analysis. And those early days when I was um, in school and, and learning the techniques, it really was a more traditional discrete trial practice, which came out of the work of Ivar Lovas uh, at UCLA. And when I finished graduate school and came out to California, yeah. I mm-hmm. found that there was um, more of an, an emphasis starting to happen uh, on the West Coast with folks like Dr. Brian Siegel, um, who was at UCSF and making recommendations in the San Francisco public schools and, and around California about what mm-hmm. ABA programs should look like. Um, the work of, of Lynn and Bob Cagle um, in Santa Barbara, and they're now at Stanford with their pivotal response treatment approach. And they mm-hmm. were sort of push, pushing the field to, to leftwards. Um, out of this more traditional discrete trial uh, into looking at more naturalistic ways to provide ABA. And so when I became familiar with these more developmental models, it started to shift my practice into uh, Uh, really looking, yeah, really looking at what how does the child respond to a discrete trial program versus a pivotal response treatment program? And what are those variables? What are you looking at with the child's learner profile to see which style and how much of each you put together um, to, for optimal outcomes for each child? So that's something that I spent the early part of my you know, career developing and then training my staff at Gateway into you know, my belief of what that blend looks like um, you know, for for each client. Um, and, and since then I continue to see the more naturalistic developmental models and the work that Bob and Lynn Cagle continue to do now at, at Stanford, um, as being, um, and at the forefront of what I consider best. Yeah, I remember coming practices. across her specifically. If I remember, she wrote a book about it uh, a while back. 
And and the, wait, could you maybe, maybe you explain like discrete trial mm-hmm. methods from what I remember is more like you expect a certain behavior, whether it's eye contact or whatever, and you get a specific reward, let's say a cookie or whatever. But the pivotal response is different than that and that you figure out what the child is interested in and you take advantage of those interests to leverage certain behaviors. Would that be right? Yeah, that is. That is right. So it's discrete trial. You kind of think of it as ABC. There's an antecedent that's presented, there's a behavior, and there's a consequence. Um, and, and hopefully that you've set things up so the child it responded correctly with prompting techniques that you're potentially using, and then you're able to provide reinforcement for that correct response. Um, and it's a lot of the same skill being presented over and over for re- repeated practice, uh, which can be quite effective, but can also get boring, right? Um, and with pivotal response treatment, mm-hmm. it it's not that you can't present things in trials and repeated learning opportunities, but it's more that you're looking for key elements. So you're very focused on incorporating the child's interests into sessions. Um, you know, I had a, a BCBA that I worked with a week ago ask, she's working with a child and she said that she needed some help to make the, the, the program more PRT related and she's asking for some advice and mm-hmm. reached out to her and said, okay, the, the first step is I need to know to help you specifically what motivates this kid. I want to know what is this child, you know, what are the child's favorite TV shows and books and cartoon characters? Because knowing all of that is going to help me to provide you with advice on, on how to um, run some of these programs in a more motivating way. Um, you know, can't, can't just give a list of here are 20 popular toys uh, to play with. You really mm-hmm. have to be very specific to the child's interest. Wait, I don't, I don't think that's true. You can just use cars, trains, or airplains, and that's it. That covers 99.9% <laughs> well, of, of kids, specifically are, boys, right? Those are indeed very popular with, uh, with the boys <laughs> and, and, uh, and boys on the spectrum. Too. Yeah, I, I definitely do remember. Uh, well, Melissa, we're coming towards the end of our time here, and uh, I always like to ask people a future-oriented question. And you, you talked a little bit about the evolution of ABA therapy over the last 15 years. What do you do? You see, what sort of changes do you see coming for the next 10 to 15 years? Will you just guys just get better at what the research says now, or will there be a, a larger change? That's a great question. Um, I do. There are. I, a lot of providers um, who are providing ABA therapy now, we've seen, of course, the incidence of autism increase and the demand for ABA service providers has um, therefore also increased. I think over the next 10 to 15 years, you're going to see sort of a, um, you know, certain providers that are having the best outcomes with their clients kind of come to the forefront and that's going to become more clearly visible to all of the key stakeholders. And I think this is really important for consumers mm-hmm. because families are very, very, there are a lot of wait lists. Um, in some areas, it's very tough to get you know services right away. And you may start and may spend a bunch of time with a provider and then realize that the provider is just not making the kind of progress that you want to see with your child. And so having more visibility on what are the outcomes associated with a particular group I think it's really key, really important for families. I'm working with, um, going to be working with uh, Kathy Lord at UCLA. She is one of the authors mm-hmm. of the, the ADOS Diagnostic Assessment. She's very interested in looking oh. at what tools can continue to be developed and used to measure pr- 
progress with children with autism. And this is something that we're working on at Gateway. And I think we're at the forefront of, of helping to use technology and, and look at how we monitor our patient progress at a macro level. And, um, you know, in the future for society to be able to see, you know, who is, is having the, the best outcomes with, with patients using ABA therapy. So it sounds like exciting things on the future. If you could just develop a pill, that'd be easier, right? But maybe that's not your area yeah, of expertise. That, that, <laughs> that, no, not, not mine. That's just some others. <laughs> all right, Melissa Willa, thanks so much for your time and giving all this great information about uh, ABA today. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to another edition of Special Education Matters. For more information, including show notes, head to our website, csnlg.com slash listen. And if you like what you hear, please uh, consider giving us a review on iTunes. Those reviews bring us lots of happiness. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we will talk again soon.